Let's dive into the book of John. If you're not there already, join me in John chapter 6. Now, this morning, Jesus is going to just continue to ratchet up his, his dialogue with this crowd that he's been talking about. You know, it's funny because most Bible teachers, most evangelists, most pastors, they're interested in growing their congregation. Jesus is going to shrink his this morning. And, and by the way, he says, in fact, he, this is, uh, as one pastor said, this is how to lose a crowd 101. You know, and you wouldn't expect that from Jesus, but there are certain things that he communicates here because he, he ratchets up his dialogue here and his crowd simply can't handle it. And hence, that's the title of the message. It's a tough metaphor to swallow. I mean, literally and figuratively, it's a tough metaphor to swallow. I think that's a metaphor within a metaphor right there, but that's, that's the design and the title. So it's a little bit memorable, but he's in the middle of, uh, of a discourse, right? With a large crowd in Capernaum. This is the same crowd that he fed miraculously the day before, known as the feeding of the 5,000. And because he had fed them, because Passover was coming on and it was near, he uses this metaphor of bread to represent himself. This is why it's become known as the bread of life discourse. But as we've said multiple times, and as we'll see again this morning, ultimately what he's doing through this discourse is he's trying to clarify for his audience who he is. He's trying to clarify his identity He's the Messiah. He's the one they should be looking for. He's the one sent from heaven. He is God's representative on earth as the Messiah. And this is what he's trying to convince them of. Now, as we get into verse 51, he starts off okay, because he's just building on what he's been saying. But as we kind of close out 51, he, he continues to build on his metaphor. And that's when the crowd goes haywire. He, it's almost like if, if he was a human speaker, we would all critique him and say, ah, you went too far with that one. (laughs) You shouldn't have said that. You should have pulled back on that. But because he's Jesus, he knew what he was doing. And he, and he, and he cranks it up just a little bit more and he cranks it up and he brings these people to a point of decision. And so we'll see their mixed responses actually looking next week, but we'll see a little bit of their response this morning. So in verse 51, he says this, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, he's been doing this a lot, but he, he keeps using this Greek phrase. He, he could just say, ego, that means I am. I am the bread of life. He could have just said it that, but he says, ego a me. I am, I am. And again, with this crowd that keeps trying to compare what he's doing, what he did the day before by feeding the the multitude in the wilderness, they keep trying to compare him to Moses. You fed us one day, Moses fed us for 40 years. That's kind of the idea. So Moses is better. So you should keep giving us bread. That's how this whole conversation started. And so when Jesus is saying, I am, I am, he is taking, I think, a Jewish mind back to the burning bush. And what he's saying without saying it is, you remember Moses in the burning bush, he's talking to Yahweh and Yahweh said, I am, I am. That was me. I was in the bush. In fact, when you look at that account, we remember that as being Yahweh, but when you look at that account, it's actually, it says it's the angel of the Lord, which I believe is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus is the I am. This is what he's telling his group, and he's giving them his identity. Now, notice he's not simply providing this living bread. He's not a bread delivery man. He's a, he doesn't have living bread with him. He is living bread. He is a lot of things, isn't he? He's the truth, Right? He's not a truth. He's not bringing the truth. He is the truth. He is 
the way. He's not a way. He's not showing them the way. He is the way, and he is the life. And we're going to see, we're going to get into that a little bit more this morning, why that's so important. Jesus doesn't just give eternal life like, oh, here you go. Here's your, here's your eternal life ticket. Make sure you hold on to that because you're going to have to get it to get in. No, you're, you're united to the Messiah. And because he's eternal life, you possess it because you're connected to him. And so he goes on to say that he came down from heaven. Now, he said this multiple times in this dialogue, but he's driving this point home. Why? Because it speaks of his identity. It speaks of his origin. It speaks of his authority. Why can he say these audacious things that he's saying? Because he's from heaven. He is God's representative on earth. He has been sent on mission. He is the Messiah. This is why he keeps going back to this origin that he came down from heaven. And what he says is simply this, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And again, he uses this concept of eating bread to represent what? Believing in him. We've been looking at that throughout this dialogue. And so this is a third class condition in the Greek. This, this, conditional, this conditional word, if, or this conditional statement, third class condition in the Greek, meaning maybe they will, maybe they won't. If, they, if anyone eats this bread, maybe they will. Maybe they won't. In fact, this most matches our conditional statements in English. Typically, when I say if, I'm not committing to anything, right? There's got to be a condition that's met. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. That's typically how we talk in English. This matches that better because it, it depicts what can occur in the future, what could possibly occur, what is only hypothetical or even will occur. And one of the things we see is that if someone did eat of this bread, if they met this condition, they believed on the Lord Jesus, they will live forever. And as we pointed out, and we'll point it out again this morning, this, it, Jesus is speaking very clearly, very dogmatically. He's not stuttering. He's not providing any additional contingencies. He's saying, if you eat of this bread, you will live future indicative, meaning a guaranteed promise. He, there's no uncertainty communicated here. There's not, well, you'll live forever, but you got to keep on believing. Not found in the passage at all. Now, that's found in religion because religion loves to manipulate behavior. But when it comes to eternal life, we are trusting in a Savior and what he did 2,000 years ago. And the moment you do that, you have eternal life. And if it's eternal life, then it lasts forever. You can't lose it. Because if you could lose it five years from now, then it was only five-year life. And now we're getting in the realm of, like I said, life insurance salesmen. And that that's just not a good thing, right? So... We're talking about eternal life here. This is why he can say these just audacious things. You will live forever. And not only that, but he uses this phrase. Sometimes the Greek language, it, it has a word and it's too hard to just translate it with a single word. And so you have a phrase like tetelestai is one of those. It is finished. One word in the Greek, but a phrase in English. Here, he actually, uh, the translators take a phrase in Greek and then reduce it to one word forever. It's an interesting phrase though. It'll, it'll come out a couple more times in the book of John. It's this Greek phrase, ice, tone, Iona. Ice means into, tone is just the definite article, the. Iona means an age denoting duration or continuance of time. He literally says, if you eat of this bread, you will live into the ages, is what he's saying or forever. It's a good translation, but it's nice to see that phrase because he's saying it even more dogmatically than just saying forever. He's giving some, he's painting it with, with color. <laughs> he's painting the phrase with color and giving us this visual. So far, so good. Jesus is just reemphasizing here in the first part of this verse, 
what he's been saying. He's just continuing on with his metaphor. But now what he's about to say is an absolute bench clearer. This is, this is where the crowd starts going sideways on him. They're, they were kind of starting to shift sideways, but this, they just went full 90 and just shifted sideways on him after he says what he's about to say. So if you want to know how to lose a crowd, talk like this. You'll lose a crowd quickly. It, they'll turn sideways quickly. And do you know that between this phrase that he just said and the phrase that we're going to look at next, Jesus's ministry will never be as popular as it was before what he's about to say. It goes downhill from here in terms of popularity. Now, many people in the day would view a ministry like that and say, that's a terrible ministry. He made a big mistake. He should have never done that. But clearly this is the Lord. He knows what he's doing. So he challenges the thinking and he says something that they just cannot believe. And this is found in the very next phrase here in verse 51. And that was their response. As we'll see in verse 52, they look just like that. So the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And, and this is what confuses them. And, and, it's, and part of it is because they're thinking on a horizontal plane. They're taking a metaphor and they're trying to view it literally. That's the problem. By the way, do people still do that with this passage today? Take this metaphor and try to look at it literally? They do. It's still people taking this on a horizontal plane. We'll talk about that as we go forward. But Jesus is, is literally, he's just continuing to build on his metaphor. That's all he's doing. He's just continuing to build on this metaphor of eating living bread. So the question is, what is he building? What's he adding here? What is he providing that he hasn't provided before? Well, I believe he's telling them how they're going to eat of the bread and why eating of the bread will give them eternal life. He's, he's starting to mix metaphors or he's starting to build and add something to this metaphor. And I believe what he's adding here is this. He's got to give his life. He's got to give his flesh. Why? Because for them to put their faith in him, he has to be a qualified object for their faith. Do you know that Jesus's life was amazing? Jesus lived a perfect life. We understand that. But do you know that Jesus's life alone could never save you from a hell that you deserved to a heaven that you don't deserve? His life couldn't do it alone. He had to die he had to pay that penalty. The thing that is keeping you and I out of heaven naturally is we have a death penalty that's hanging over our head because of our sin, the wages of sin. If God gave us what we deserved, it would be death. We've got that hanging over our head and we lack righteousness. We have two problems, big problems, insurmountable. We can't overcome ourselves. This is why Jesus had to die. He paid the very death penalty that you and I deserved. And when you put your faith in him, God credits his righteousness to your account. Solves the problem. Solves both problems in one fell swoop. That is why the gospel is good news. If, if we don't have any concept of how bad the bad news is, we don't value the gospel. We're like, yeah, Jesus died. Who gives a rip? And we see that a lot at the fair. People know that. They understand it. They don't understand the significance until you paint the picture for them of the precarious situation that we're all in as a, in our human condition. And so uh, what is he adding? He is, he's giving his life for them to put their faith in a qualified object, the sinless one dying in place of the sinful one, the sinless one's death applying across the board to the world, whoever will put their faith in him. And this is what I believe he's saying. By the way, this has nothing to do with communion. I, I, 
It has nothing to do with communion. It has nothing to do with cannibalism. That is not the context of the passage. He's talking to a group of unbelievers. He doesn't institute communion until almost a year later. And where does he do it? Does he do it to a crowd of unbelievers? No, he does it in the upper room to his his disciples. He teaches them what this is going to look like going forward. This has nothing to do with communion. This has all about being, this is all about being born again. This is all about believing in the Lord Jesus. Now, both of these phrases shall give. He says, I shall give. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Future indicative, guaranteed promise. The question is, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about his death on the cross specifically. This is where he gives his life. This is where he gives his flesh. This is one of the things that that communion does represent. But when you look at the death of Jesus Christ, his body was broken for you. He was torn apart for you. He died for you. He shed his blood for you. And so he is going to give his life. That's the bread that he's talking about ultimately. And to eat of that bread means to rely upon his sacrifice. That's where this is all going. But obviously they don't take it that way. They get, they get a little sideways with them here because they're, they're not taking, they're not uh, receiving it as the metaphor that it was supposed to be. So again, he's building on this metaphor. That's what he's doing. How that ties into providing them with eternal life, how the cross work ties into that. And again, why will he give his flesh in the future? Notice what he says in verse 51. We just kind of follow the phrase. We can follow the wording. He shall give it. And notice that next word, for. That's the reason. For what? For the life of the world. This is how he provides life. He provides life for the world through his death. And for is the Greek word huper. Now, anyone that's ever done any Greek study, you'll recognize that word because it's the word that means on behalf of, for the sake of, on account of. It is he for us. It is he instead of us. If you go through uh, Isaiah 53, which is the preeminent Old Testament passage predicting the death of Christ, it's he for us. It's him for our sins, right? It's him being beaten for our transgressions, right? All of these things, it's him for us. This is the word used here. It's on behalf of, it's in place of, it's substitutionary. You know where else the word is used in one of our favorite verses, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died instead of us. Christ died in the place of us. It's a substitutionary concept brought out by this word. That's what he uses here in John. And so again, this is that Greek word that describes that substitutionary aspect. And so this is the only way Jesus can provide eternal life. This is why it's so foolish when religion comes in and tries to tell you how you have to behave to have eternal life. That has nothing to do with eternal life. You need a substitute. You need someone to take care of your twofold problem. You say, well, I'll take care of it myself. Well, well you can, but you'll spend eternity in hell paying off that death penalty because you're not perfect in righteousness to ever enter into heaven. And working it off in hell won't make you perfect. So we need a substitute. This is what he's saying here. He had to do this for the life of the world. And what I love about the Lord Jesus is he's not selective. He's not exclusive in terms of where his death can apply. He paid the sin penalty for every man, woman, and child in history. And, and, I, and I can't remember who said it. I'd love to give him credit, but it was an old, you know, old, old person. I don't know, but from years ago, right? <laughs> what a great lead in. 
But he said, <laughs> he said that one drop of the blood of Christ could have covered the sins of the entire world. And just how precious and how valuable his shed blood is for each one of us. And this is what he's providing here. He wants his, his audience to understand. Now, if they got it, if they got it, they would be saying, praise God. But instead, look what they do in verse 52. It says that the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're, they're literally thinking Jesus is going to start picking skin off of his forearm. Here you go. Here's some bread. You know, they literally think he's going to start ripping stuff off of his thigh or something. They're, they're like, this is weird. This guy's going to make us eat his body. Ooh, this is odd. They're missing the metaphor. They're taking a metaphor literally. And so we see the Jews quarrel. This, this word quarrel means to fight as in war or battle. It describes serious conflict physical or non-physical, but the battle is clearly intensive and bitter. This is what this word brings out. It's, there's an intense struggle going on here, and we're going to see it's kind of more internally. There's a couple of other observations on this word. The word quarrels in the imperfect tense. It reflects ongoing and continual conflict. The idea is they, they heard it, and they were just agitated, stirred up, just unsettled, just, and it's described in an ongoing way. It wasn't like they heard it and were like, I don't agree with that. Let's, oh, what are we eating tonight for dinner? You know, it was like, man, I can't believe he just, are you, you, you know, it's like they just can't get, all, get this out of their mind. It's kind of the idea. The second thing we see is this phrase among themselves. That's interesting because it, it indicates some, something that's somewhat private, not something, not a public attack, not a public denunciation. They weren't shouting Jesus down. They weren't trying to stop him from saying something, right? And so they were just, they were struggling, but they weren't calling him out publicly, but Jesus could see this and there's tension in the air. And, and if you've ever spoken to, to somebody or you've ever spoken to a group of people and you've said something controversial, you can, even if they're not shouting you down, sometimes you can tell when there's tension in the air. You can tell that something didn't quite land <laughs> with them and you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their body language oftentimes. This is what's going on here. And so they're quarreling among themselves. And, and why is it? Well, notice why. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This verb, how can, means to be able, to have power by virtue of his own ability. Just like anybody that would say that. It, it, I mean, if anyone said that to you and I today, hey, you just go, if you ever get hungry, just come over to my house. I'll give you some of my flesh to eat. You'd be like... Yikes, I'm gonna delete that guy off my cell phone, man. That's a little odd. So, so you can understand from a, from a horizontal level why they're saying this. They're basically saying, how is this even possible? And again, they're missing the metaphor. Again, their focus, their mindset's horizontal. They're picturing this actual consumption. They're picturing cannibalism. This is what they think Jesus is teaching. And hence their response. You'll, you'll see they, many of them leave him. They get away from him after that. So again, they were missing the point. And as I mentioned before, it's ironic because people still take this passage and miss the point today. They still want to take this passage and they want to make it literal. They don't take this as a metaphor, which is exactly what he's designed it to be. And so there's lots of confusion here. As I said before, when you say something to a group of people or someone and you can tell it doesn't land properly, what's the typical human response in that situation? Especially if you're 
if you have some emotional intelligence and you can actually read people, you back off. You back off. You're like, ooh, that didn't land. Let me back off. Let me take it a little bit easy. Jesus doesn't do that. He puts the accelerator down. It's incredible. And what we're about to see, it's like, and it wasn't that Jesus didn't recognize this in the crowd. He knew he's pushing them to a point of decision, okay? He's been going back and forth with them. He's been trying to explain it. And like every conversation he has with Nicodemus, the woman at the well in John 3, he, if they don't get it, he just ratchets it up. He just keeps ratcheting it up. He doubles down here. He keeps driving home this metaphor and he adds to it now as we go forward, something that they're gonna have even more trouble with. And we find this in verses 53 through 54. When Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, we've heard that before. He just said that, but notice what he adds and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. And Jesus leads into this statement with the phrase that he keeps repeating in this passage. You've got the verses up there where he said this, but he says, most assuredly, it just translates this phrase, amen, amen. And and the idea is what I'm about to say, it's just an emphatic way of saying what I'm about to say is super duper trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. He's setting apart what he's about to say and he knows it's gonna be hard to swallow, (laughs) so to speak, but he doubles down. He says, what I'm about to say you can trust, you can take to the bank. This is very important. And so he says, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so he, he gives now two things that his audience must do in order to possess eternal life. The first one is something that he's been building toward this entire metaphor, this entire teaching. He's been building to this point, eating the flesh of the son of, uh, son of man. In fact, he started with the concept of bread from heaven. Then he moved to bread of life. And then he, in verse 51, he just moved to living bread. And remember, eating bread is, is what? It's illustrative of believing in him, relying upon him. And this is what he's been doing throughout the dialogue. But also notice this, and Jesus does this, and it's so subtle. I, I want to point it out because those of us that have read our Bible all our life, We're used to seeing this phrase, but we lose the significance of what Jesus is saying here to a Jewish audience that would have picked this up. Like this would have stood out to them like like a highlighter, okay? It'd be like giving somebody a document and you've highlighted things for them. It's gonna draw their attention. In fact, have you ever bought a used book and you're like, I can't wait to read this and someone's like marked it up and highlighted? It's kind of hard to read, isn't it? It's like, oh, I don't know if I liked that because they highlighted it or if I actually liked it. You know, you just don't know. But But he's highlighting this right here because notice what he switches to son of man he says unless you eat the flesh of the son of man now what would a jew think of when they heard son of man they're not thinking jesus in his humanity many many commentators say oh when he said son of man he means humanity when he says son of god he's speaking of his deity i don't agree with that at all i don't don't think i don't agree with that i think when he says son of man he's referring to daniel 7 13 and 14 And the son of man is going to be given the kingdom by God the father. And you can see that in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. What would have been mind blowing for the Jewish people is number one, by the way, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, what does he say? Unless the son of man is lifted up. Nicodemus would have been like, what? The son of man's not gonna die. The son of man's not gonna suffer. The son of man's coming to reign. 
And this is putting those two concepts that were often confusing to the Jewish mind. How can we have a reigning king and a suffering servant? And so Jesus is drawing this back again. He's connecting himself to this messianic passage over and over again. But the second thing he says is this. You've also got to drink the son of man's blood. This is, <laughs> this is brand new. He hasn't said anything about this throughout this discourse, okay? This would have been very problematic for his audience because if you know anything about the Old Testament, what were the Jews to do with the blood? They were not to eat the blood. They were to drain the sacrifice of blood. They were not to have any part of drinking the blood. Now they would take the blood and do what? Sprinkle it on the altar, okay? It represented the the atonement covering for their sins, but they were not to eat it or to drink it. And ultimately, I think Jesus is mentioning this in the, in the grand big picture. He's talking about the, the violent death that he's going to die. This is why this is brought in at this point. But what's really interesting, it's significant, because by referring to both his flesh and blood, Jesus was figuratively referring to his whole person here. He's referring to his entire being. It's talking about trusting in Jesus, everything he would do, everything he would accomplish, not shying away from any aspect of his ministry. And people do this all the time today, don't they? Well, I think Jesus was a good man. I think he was a prophet. I think he was a good teacher. I don't know if he was the same, you know, I don't know if he, uh, this whole dying thing, uh, you know, and it's like, you can't, it's not a pick and choose with Jesus. You, when you put your faith in him, when you believe in his name, as oftentimes the scripture talks about, this is, you're, you're trusting in the person and what he did. It's all encompassed there. And I think this is part of what he's doing. I think he uses a figure of speech that we call a synecdoche, which is just one part stands for the whole. He's putting these two parts together. It stands for the whole, who he is, what he's done. And the reason I say that too is what did he just say in verse 51? He said, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He's talking about his sacrifice here which would incorporate not only his body, but also the shedding of his blood. Also, interestingly, context, because Passover was approaching. Remember back in 6-4, I mean, it seems like forever ago, and it kind of, it, it's been many weeks for us, but this is in the same context of what 6-4 said, Passover is near. So the Jewish mind is on Passover, it, the meal. And remember in the Passover meal, it included unleavened bread. What's Jesus been using as a metaphor? Bread. It includes a sacrificial lamb. What did Jesus just say he was going to do in verse 51? Be a sacrificial lamb for them, right? In their place, for the life of the world. And then there were multiple cups of wine, which ultimately represented redemption. And by the way, I think it's the mention of drinking his blood that ultimately drove, which we're going to see next week. Many of the people who were following him up to this point just drove him away. I can't handle that. <laughs> He said a lot of cool things. He said a lot of weird things, but that just got really weird, right? And I'm out of here. It's kind of the response that we're going to have to, to there. So again, um, Jesus is building um, off of this Old Testament sacrificial imagery. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And now Jesus is going to provide one more illustration of believing. He's provided four. We're going to look at those in a second, but this is just one more. Remember in verse 51, I just mentioned, he mentioned his sacrificial death. What do Old Testament saints do when they offer the sacrifice? They drain the blood and they ate the meat of the sacrifice. But here, eating and drinking represents a full trust in the sacrifice and full 
And so one of the things I mentioned, this is the fourth illustration of faith that results in eternal life. Remember the first one, they wanted to, they were laboring after the wrong kind of food. And Jesus said, you need to labor after the food which endures to eternal life. And they said, what must we do to work the works of God? Remember what he said? Basically, trust in the work of God. That's what you should do. It's not about you doing something for God. It's about you trusting in what God has done for you. Even a, a, a man uh, I spoke to yesterday, we, we talked and we went round and around and around and, and he just kept saying, and, 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 I, and, and you need to give your life to Christ. And I just kept saying, well, wait a minute, is it you give your life to Christ or did Christ give his life for you? And he's like, yes, that one. And then two minutes later, he was talking about how he gave his life to Christ. I said, wait a minute, is it you gave your life to Christ or Christ gave his life for you? Which one is it, Right. There's one direction that's correct. There's one direction that's incorrect. And it makes a world of difference because if you think you're getting to heaven by giving your life to Christ, you won't make it there. Because that's not how anybody gets to heaven. It's not about what you give to God, what you sacrifice to God, what you commit to God, how you determine you're going to behave for God going to future. It is all about what Jesus Christ has done for you. Are you relying upon him or are you not? That is the million dollar question. God has thrown you a life raft. Will you take it by faith? That's the question. And that's what he provides in the Lord Jesus. Another example comes to me. We've looked at that a number of times. Eating of this bread, we've looked at that. And now he uses this, eats of my flesh and drinks my blood. When this condition is met, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which represents believing, this person has eternal life. Very important. That word has, present, indicative, right now, presently possessed, continually possessed, life that never ends. And if you have it and it never ends, guess what? You can never lose it. That is just logical definition. And Jesus Christ and his sacrifice provided that for anyone who will believe in him. This is life that never ends. And then notice what he says. It's actually the fourth time that he said that in this passage. Whoever believes in him, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so this is, again, another promise, guaranteed. It's it's a future indicative. It's guaranteed. The son of man himself, the one who's coming to establish his kingdom, is the very one that's going to raise people from the dead. And who's he going to raise from the dead? Well, we know that unbelievers and believers will be raised from the dead. But who will be raised from the dead into eternal life? Those who have put their faith in him. Guaranteed promise no stuttering, no contingencies, it's guaranteed. And this is what every Orthodox Jew was looking forward to on the basis of Daniel 12 too. Jesus, for the Jewish audience, just connected Daniel 7, 13, and 14 with Daniel 12 too, said the son of man is gonna be the one that initiates the resurrection. Now we've seen that in chapter five, we've seen that now in chapter six. By the way, if you're, if you're taking notes, this is the fourth time in the passage that he said this, I will raise him up at the last day. We saw it in verse 39, verse 40, in verse 44. Now we see it here in verse uh, 54. So he's just reiterating, he's the one that raises people from the dead when they rely upon him. Now, as we go to the next verse, he's going to reemphasize that what he's saying is true. We see this in verse 55. It's kind of a, a real short verse. And I think what he's just saying is, I'm just telling you the truth, right? He's kind of reemphasizing how he led into this with Amen, amen. He's just kind of reemphasizing the fact that he's telling them the truth. And the way he does it, he says, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And as I mentioned earlier, 
the entire dialogue here, if you go back to verse 27, the entire dialogue started because they were pursuing the wrong kind of sustenance. They were, they were looking for bread that didn't endure, endure to eternal life. They're looking for physical food to stuff their, their face, basically. And they, they wanted food for free. They wanted ongoing food for free. And so Jesus is going to say, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. You see that word indeed uh, repeated twice. It just means truly or in truth. And again, he's just reemphasizing, I'm telling you the truth. And if my flesh is food indeed, guess what? If you eat of it, what did he say earlier? You'll never hunger. Never, no, not ever. Remember the double negation? Never, no, not ever hunger. And what did he tell the woman at the well? And he said it here too, that if you drink, in John 4, it was water, living water. Here it's his blood. But if you drink, you'll never what? Thirst. Never, no, not ever. It implies a one-time act of faith with eternal benefits. That's what he's reflecting here. And so they needed to believe in him. And now he's going to continue this analogy. And he tells them that his flesh is true food. His blood is true drink. And now he's going to go on and explain why. Okay, so he's been saying, what I'm saying is true. What I'm saying is true. This is true. This is true. Now he's going to say why it's true. He's going to kind of give the mechanism behind why what he's saying is true. He's kind of proving it out. And we'll see that here in the next couple of verses, verses 56 and 57. Because he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a living father sent me, I live because of the father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, before we get into this verse, you got to, those of us that love John 15, okay, I, I love John, I'm with you. I love John 15. You got to take John 15 out of your mind for a second. Because it's, it's crazy. Every time we see abide, we just, we're just like, oh, it's, it, we're talking about fellowship. We're talking about, you know, enjoying Jesus Christ. We're talking about, you know, uh, bearing fruit. And I, I don't believe he uses the word here like that. So try to take John 15 out of your mind and, and give, me, give me a few minutes. Let's, let's develop this together and understand the, the flow of what Jesus is saying. Again, he's now explaining why what he's been saying is true. Why, if I eat of him, do I have eternal life? Why, why can you say that? Why can you say that I'll be raised again? Why? And part of it is when you trusted in Jesus Christ, we went over this in the book of Ephesians, the moment you trusted in Christ, God the Father united you with Jesus Christ never to be separated from him again. And because he's eternal life, you have eternal life, not because he gave you a ticket, but because you are joined to the very one who is eternal life. That's what he's talking about here, I believe, using this word abide. In fact, the word Abide simply means to remain or to dwell, to continue in a state or activity. Uh, again, it's the same word used in John 15. I think he's using it a little bit differently here, talking about our positional connection to Jesus Christ, not our relational fellowship with Jesus Christ. And let's, let's kind of talk why I, th- I think that's true. And it's, and it's the connection that you have for the one who believes in him. And again, he keeps going back to this analogy, right? This metaphor that he's using, he who feeds on me, right? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And so he's going to develop this further. And the reason I say this, that it's not the same as John 15 is because of what he's going to say in verse 57 when we get there. I think it's going to support this, that he's using it a little bit uh, differently here. Remember in John 15, the, the, the word abide is given as a command, something that you as a believer must do by faith. It requires a volitional 
choice to abide, to remain where you've been placed in fellowship with the Lord. Here, he's just giving us a statement of fact. The one who believes, he says, abides in me. It's, a, it's an indicative. It's just a statement of fact that's true of you when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think he's using it differently here. And so in this sense, building on the analogy, someone who physically eats food and physically drinks liquid is joined to that liquid and food. You've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. You know, you, you, eat a little, you eat a little too much cake, you start feeling like cake, you know, around the, <laughs> around the midsection, right? You, but, but conceptually, when you eat and drink, you, you, you are joined to that food. It's not over here in a bag, you know, that you carry along with you and gets digested out here. It, you ingest it. You're, you're one with the food in, in, in terms of this analogy or metaphor. And this is, I believe, what he's saying here. And so in this way, we could say that when we eat physical food and drink, uh, we could say using the term this way, we abide in that food and drink and it abides in us. We could use this word the same way. Obviously, we don't talk like that. Uh, that'd be odd, right? You're eating lunch with someone. Boy, this, this food is really abiding well in me. You'd be like, again, off the phone. They'd delete the contact, right? It's just a little weird. Um, but as we get into verse 57, what we're going to see is there's a comparison that Jesus is going to make. He's going to, he's going to make a comparison to, to, I think, bear out the fact that when you trust in Christ, you are put in union with him. And the comparison he uses is he's going to say, this is my relationship with the Father, and thus, this is your relationship to me when you believe. Okay, and this is where he's going to go. So we'll see a similar relationship as Jesus builds this as we go forward in verse 57. In fact, notice the very first word of verse 57, at least in the New King James, it's the word as. Okay, so already you, you English, you know, geeks ought to be thinking what? Simile, right? She's making a comparison and this is exactly what he's doing. Uh, it's the Greek word kathos. It means according as, it implies manner and it's a marker of similarity between uh, something, between two things. And this is what he's gonna do. He's gonna take his relationship to the father and he's gonna, just like this is just like you and me. And this, again, he's explaining why all of these great things are true of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. And so he's gonna use this comparison to further emphasize what he's teaching here, that whoever feeds on him is gonna, gonna live eternally. And so for this comparison and emphasis, he describes his origin, his authority. Again, what have I been, I've been trying to repeat, but his, really the main goal is to identify himself for this crowd. So he's going back to his origin, he's going back to his authority, and he uses this phrase, the living father. And I, and I love that phrase because, again, it's, he's the living father. That means the father holds life. The father possesses life. The father is life. Now we believe that when we go to Genesis 3 because or Genesis 1 because we see it. What does he do? He breathes life into the nostrils of Adam. We say, okay, I believe that there. But oftentimes we forget that he's the very source of life. And so Jesus brings this truth out. He's the living father. And guess what? It's the living father that sent Jesus. And that, and that sounds like such a simple statement, but understand that the word sent means to dispatch to send, to send somebody with authority, to send a representative. And so Jesus, again, he's just reminding this audience, remember, my origin is from heaven. I have been sent with a mission. I am on mission. I'm the representative of Yahweh. And then as he's been saying, I am Yahweh. I'm the son 
but I'm on mission from the father. And so he's going back through and it's the living father. And by the way, why can Jesus offer life? Because he's God, he is life. But also, as he says here, I live through the father. In fact, we, we, we see this, this phrase, I live because of the father. You know, it's actually the Greek preposition dia, which means through. That's actually what the word means. It, because of is fine as well, but, it, but I think it, it sheds a little bit more meaning when we understand that he lives through the Father. And the idea is that Jesus right now and continually lives through the Father. And what that tells us is that the source of life that Jesus drew from, the resources that Jesus drew from to live his earthly life were not his own resources. They were the resources of the Father. Now that should sound familiar because that's exactly how we're designed to live the Christian life. Not on our own resources, but through the resources of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of the comparison he's going to make. But here he's not going that far. He's just saying, I live through the Father. The reason I possess life, the reason I can promise life, the reason I can do everything is because I'm unified with the Father. It's all through the Father's resources. And so one of the things that's just beautiful about this is even though Jesus was in a human body, he was still the eternal God and he was connected to the eternal father. And this is where he sourced his life from, his daily life, uh, the fact that he is life. And I love it because uh, what he's gonna do here when he transitions to us, it makes sense why you don't have to behave to earn eternal life. It makes sense why you don't have to achieve to earn eternal life, why you don't have to perform to earn eternal life. That's everything that religion teaches in a nutshell. It's all about you Get on the stage, dance, sing a jig spiritually, and then we'll see if you make it at the end. It's not about you. It's about the Savior. And this is what he's going to say here. We trust in the one who provided his life on a cross for you and I, who gave his life for you and I to provide life. That's who it's about. That's always who it's about. It's always about his payment. And that's why he can offer salvation as a free gift. He paid it in full. He paid our wages in full. But notice how he transitions now. So as he lives through the father, and he says, he who feeds on me, and feeds on me is just another way of saying he who believes in me will live because of me. And this is what, exactly what Jesus has been describing. When you put your faith in him, you will live through him. You will live because of him. You will live because you are in union with him. This is what he, I believe, is describing here. And notice this guaranteed promise again. He will live. And this is the exact reason Jesus made the comparison earlier. He, he lives through his connection with the Father. Each person who believes in Jesus will live through their connection with Jesus. This is the comparison that he's giving us here. And thus, the abiding spoken of in verse 56, again, is describing this positional union with Jesus Christ. This is where he's coming from. He's not talking about moment-by-moment moment fellowship. We're going to get to that in John 15. Beautiful truth, too. Just not, I don't believe what he's teaching here. I think he's teaching more of a positional union here. This is the basis for why he can promise eternal life. Again, if you're joined to the one who is eternal life, then you can't lose it either. You kind of you hitched your wagon to the right guy when you trusted in Jesus Christ, right? That's kind of the... The, the old West joke, right? Who, you know, these women that would get married to guys going out West, you know, who would they hitch their wagon to? To, to some lazy bum? Well, that ain't going to end well for them. They'll probably die out in the wilderness, uh, you know, Indian attack, something, you know, they, they won't have shelter. But if they hitch their wagon to the right kind of man, they could, they could live a fulfilled life. 
And so salvation, I mean, that's just another, sorry to add more metaphors this morning, but it's like you hit your wagon to Jesus Christ by putting your faith in him and you won't be disappointed because he provides life. He is life. And that's really the point uh, of what he's saying here. And now, believe it or not, in verse 58, we get to the closing statement of the bread of life discourse. This is how Jesus ends it out. So he kind of provides this, this uh, summary. And what he's going to tell us is, guys, basically this, I'm better bread than the manna you got from Moses. Word, right? I mean, that's it. You know, that's basically what he's going to say. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Again, Jesus, again, he just expressly states, I'm the true bread, not the manna. Get your eyes off of the manna. I've got better, I am better bread than the manna. I provided the manna. I got something better I'm providing to you. When you eat of the bread I'm providing you, you'll never die. Look at your ancestors, they're all dead. You can go to their graves if you wanted to out in the wilderness, right? They died, they ate the manna every day. The reason, again, manna was collected six days a week eaten to sustain the life of the Israelites in the wilderness. It was a blessing from God, make no mistake, but it does not compare to the bread of life that he's offering them now. And they thought what Moses did was better than what Jesus was offering, and they were wrong. They were completely wrong. Many of them never realized it. Some of them, hopefully by God's grace, did. And so he says, he who eats this bread will live forever. Again, eating this bread, synonymous for what? Believing in Jesus Christ. And this is what we see throughout the passage. The promise is guaranteed. They will live forever. Future indicative. Again, that's a guaranteed promise in the future. When you eat the bread one time, you'll never hunger again. You'll live forever. And once again, he uses that phrase, ice tone, Iona, into the ages. Okay, is what he's describing here. And so in verse uh, 59, as we finish out this morning, we get, we get a point of context. You know, I've been just saying that he's in Capernaum. He mentions this back, back in verse 24, I think. Verse 24, he mentioned they were in Capernaum. This is the first indication that this whole discourse took place in a synagogue, the synagogue in Capernaum. Because in verse 59, we read these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And there's the point I was looking for. Yeah, he, he mentioned this, that they were in Capernaum. This is where the boats ended up. This is, remember, Jesus walked across the water and then joined their boat. And this is where the boat ended up was in Capernaum. This is where they started. But with this is the first indication that this conversation recorded for us, known as the Bread of Life Discourse, took place in a synagogue. And just as a kind of reminder, this is uh, just a map, a little topographical map of the Sea of Galilee. They were up in this area, Beth, Beth, Bethsaida where he fed the 5,000 the day before. Um, you remember the disciples, Jesus had sent them across the lake. They, they almost lost their lives. Jesus walked on water. Peter walked on water. They got in the boat. They got to the side immediately. We, we read all of that in John 6 and other places. But they ended up in Capernaum. That's where they're at. They end up in the synagogue when he gives this bread of life discourse. Now, Capernaum it becomes the home base. It became the home base of Jesus for his ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee. When he was in his Galilean ministry, Capernaum was his home base. In fact, there's still ruins today. Those are the ruins of the synagogue uh, in Capernaum. You can see those today. Now, one of the things that's unique uh, about synagogue, and I've, I've never been to synagogue, but just read a little bit about it, is it was, it was somewhat normal for lay people or non-rabbis to get up and speak or to share 
uh, a word. And this is what, what made a great avenue for the Apostle Paul when he was on his missionary journeys. They would invite him to speak. You know, he wasn't necessarily part of their synagogue. He was just a traveling person, but they would allow other people to speak. And it was very much a dialogue. It was a back and forth. It wasn't like, like this morning, I'm doing all the talking and I'm sure there's questions that have come up. Oh yeah, but what about this? In a synagogue, you'd be able to do that. Here, they'd be like, oh, be, hey, deacon, can you get this person out? You know, it's just, it'd be a little odd culturally, right? But here, it wasn't that way. And so Jesus is speaking in the synagogue. What's really cool about this is it's the same exact city that Jesus had already healed the nobleman's son from a distance. We, we read about that account. We studied that in John 4. Same exact city that he had done that. What's really cool, it's also where Jesus had resuscitated or brought back to life the young daughter of Jairus, who was the ruler of this very synagogue. So kind of cool. That had already happened. And now Jesus is in this synagogue giving the bread of life discourse. I'm sure Jairus welcomed Jesus and said, hey, hey, my place is your place. If you want to speak, we're all sitting down to listen. So he gives him this opportunity to teach. What's really cool too is if you go back to Luke, um, obviously that story of Jairus and the, and the, the resuscitation of his daughter is not in John, it's in Luke 8. But it, you'll see that there's a little skip in the verses in between there is a story with the, uh, with the woman of the issue of blood. And it was on the way to the synagogue in Capernaum that she reaches out and grabs one of Jesus's tassels and she's healed. A lot of neat things surrounding uh, the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, starting next week, uh, we're going to look at the, the different responses among the different people group that were in the audience. And we're going to see that many people left Jesus over this discourse, especially as he ratcheted up the metaphor here in the last few verses that we looked at today. But let's go ahead and close there uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And most of all, as we uh, just continue to look at the life of Jesus, we are absolutely blown away with him. Uh, with his teaching, with his works, with his life. Lord, everything about him amazes us. We long for the day when we see him face to face, not on the basis of our good deeds, but on the basis of the finished work that he accomplished for us. We cannot wait to look you in the face and to give you a big hug and, and to never have to be apart from you again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.